0: You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ.
1: Good morning, Free City Church. My name is Maggie Teets, and I am a city group leader with the Teets Higginbotham City Group. And I have been um, a member at Free City, my husband and I, for about seven years. And I serve as the coordinator for the offering team, and I also serve on the prayer team, um, which is the group of people that stands behind uh, the black curtains after communion. If you would like uh, prayer, those people would love to pray for you. Today's reading is actually going to be out of Psalm 17. Um, it is. It can be found on page 424 um, if you happen to have a Bible um, that's under your seat and you want to flip open to that. Um, as we read from Psalm 17, um, we're just going to have Ukraine on our hearts, and I will spend some time praying for that um, after the reading. So Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, and you will answer me, O oh God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O oh, Savior of those who seek refuge, from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings, from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity, with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps, they, have, they set their eyes to cast us to the ground, He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, um, we acknowledge that we don't even know what to pray right now. But as it says in Romans 8, Lord, um, that when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit will intercede with groanings too deep for words. And Father, you hear the cries of our Christian brothers and sisters in Ukraine, Lord, who are experiencing um, and just fear um, unfathomable for their families, their friends, their children. Lord, you hear their cries. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you intercede and that you hear those cries, God, um, and that you answer them, Lord. I pray for um, comfort, peace, hope, and Lord, above all, I just pray for your presence um, in Ukraine, a presence that surpasses understanding. Lord, I pray for our leaders. God, will you um, just heal? Will you give wisdom? And for all the other things that we don't know what to pray for, God, I just lift those up to you. Um, I pray for those of us who um, just don't understand how you're working um, in the midst of our own lives and um, the things that we're going through. And I just thank you um for every man and woman and child that came to church today um in the midst of doubts and fears of our own and lord that you are here with us thank you for being here with us and we lift up the sermon today and that we can hear from you and we love you lord amen
0: uh my name is casey i'm uh one of the pastors here and um if you're with us for the first time we're in a series in ecclesiastes uh but not not this morning um, I'm actually kind of living out one of uh, my reoccurring nightmares. Um, so I had this reoccurring nightmare, uh, where, uh, I'm not supposed to preach, uh, and I show up to church and then all of a sudden I realize I'm supposed to preach. Um, and I'm like, all right, just calm down. I mean, you come on, you went to seminary, you know, stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of stuff about the gospel, just pull something out of the hat. And so I like something, you know, well, something, you know, well, and so I'll be I'm always looking for Philippians. Um, I I guess maybe I'd like I don't know. And so I'm always like, all right, do something with Philippians. And I'm looking in the Bible and I can't find Philippians. And like uh the the worship part of this service is closing out. Uh we've got someone praying. I'm about to get up there, and I'm like, No, 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 oh Ephesians, no, dang it and, you know, keep moving back and forth. And uh and so that's not exactly what happened this morning, but um my Sunday morning usually looks like this I usually get up really pretty early uh, I, I would say really early for me um, so I get up uh, around six and uh, I just go to look at the sermon and just um, read over it uh, sometimes we'll kind of just work it out a little bit but usually just read over it and underline and I just kind of pray and um, I don't write the sermon um, on Sunday morning um, I swear I don't <laughs> um, And this morning, the same thing. Uh, I did that, and we're supposed to be in the end of Ecclesiastes 2, where it's talking about finding our hope and identity um, and value and work, which is important, and we're going to do that. Um, And just normal, uh, just kind of reading through and making some changes here and there and just familiarizing uh, myself with all of that. And then about 8, like 8.15, a friend text, and he just said something to the effect of, oh my goodness, you know... um, uh, Putin has said the possibility of uh, defensive nuclear ordinances um, is it time to pray in precatory prayers. And by this time I was actually in the bathroom um, uh, putting all this together. <laughs> um, and uh, when I read it, my heart leaned um, and just said Psalm 17. Now, listen, if I was Gary or if I was Lowell, I mean, they have incredible amounts of Scripture just memorized. Like, it would have just been real simple, like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's an imprecatory psalm, the first one. But I'm not. And so I thought, Psalm 17, that's me. I mean, you know, when we do series, we usually do really creative things like Ecclesiastes, and we call it Ecclesiastes. Or in the summer we have a, a, a history of just kind of jumping into the Psalms and we're just looking at the songs that Jesus would have known, the songs that He would have sang. Um, and we've done Psalm 17, um, and uh, but it kind of my heart just kind of still leaned on that. And so I go and I'm actually printing Ecclesiastes 2, and while I'm printing I just like man, um, I wonder if I just searched in my. Computer in Pregatory Psalms, what would come up. And I, I searched in Pregatory Psalms, and the first one that came up was Psalm 17. Um, and so then I very reluctantly printed Psalm 17 just in case, that sermon, um, and brought it with me, uh, not planning on making any changes. Um, but then while I was here a little early looking over it, um, I just kind of felt my heart lean that way a little bit more. And so uh, if this goes really, really bad, it's my nightmare i mean it it happens all the time um but you know the the psalms are are a collection uh, of songs or or poems um, and prayers Uh, they're the inside workings of of people who fear and love god and come across things they don't understand or questions that they have and sometimes it's joyful you know i'm rereading uh, lord of the rings and uh, I, I listened to it. I had some drive time this week. And so I was listening to it. And man, I just kind of fell in love with it all over again. And uh, by listening to it, I realized how much they sing, you know, like, I mean, you got Tom Bombadil, a And he just sings, you know, he, he's singing about uh, Lady Goldberry. He's like, oh, man, I'd love to save the world, but I got to get back to Lady Goldberry. You know, she's a uh, river goddess. And I mean, I mean, that sounds hot, right? You know, River Goddess. Uh, but they just sing. But I always skip the songs. I mean, I'm not going to sing them in my head or I'm not going to sing them out loud. But at it, it, listening to it, like I listened to all the songs. And I just was reminded of like, man, why do we sing? Like like we sing because it's this expression coming from the soul. Um, It's an expression that does sometimes more than what words can do. That there's something that can align. And so there's different kinds of singing. There's songs that sing out of joy and exuberance and want and need. And there's songs that sing out of confusion. And so imprecatory psalms, imprecatory means a judgment it's the, the psalms that we find that were written that we read and we're like I, I don't I don't even know I don't even know how this got the Bible. You know, it's Psalm sometimes of David uh, where he's like, listen, God, I need you to show up and I need you to do something because everything's messed up around here. And this guy is a big problem. So you need to go ahead and kill him and maybe kill his kids and his kids, kids and his kids, 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 kids and his second cousin. I mean, you need to kill them. You need to do something. There is something wrong. And so we come across these, and a lot of times we're kind of astonished, like, oh, my goodness. But the question is, does a loving and judging God, does he ever do anything about wrong? Like, if we have a sense, and sometimes our sense of right and wrong is wrong. Like, sometimes we're like, oh, man, that's terrible. How could anyone ever do that? And it's not terrible. You just don't like it. But sometimes there's an inner sense that we come collectively around and even in a culture that is abandoning like absolute truths and abandoning like an afterlife and God that's going to judge. Even as a culture, we still have a sense of justice and wrong and we have nothing to base it on. I mean, if there's no God, if it's only, we'll jump in Ecclesiastes again, if all we have is what's under the sun if there's nothing beyond the sun or nothing above the sun, you live and you die and there's millions of years on one side of you and millions of years on the other, then who's to say how you should live It's not going to make a big difference. But if there is a God, a God who has championed truth and not just truth because it's right, truth because it's beautiful. And if that God himself is the author of all love and justice and he's the author of everything that's good, then his heart would be moved by what is contrary to his heart and it would affect him. And we would expect him to have thoughts about it. We would actually expect him to do something about it. And so enters in imprecatory psalms. These are the songs that Jesus would have grown up singing. These are the songs that he would have probably sang in his heart at moments of confusion or joy. Or maybe just like Lord of the Rings when they're just walking places and they just sing together. These are the songs that would have come out of him. And so like we got to be honest. Sometimes the simplest answers are the truest. You know, I mean, like when I ask, man, why don't I just lift more weight? It's because they're heavy. That's why I don't lift more weights. It's simple answers, sometimes the truest. Uh, I was, this was a while ago, but I was out of shampoo and I was telling Kenzie, hey, next time go to the store, I'm out of shampoo. And Quinn was like, why do you need shampoo? And I'm trying to like, well, why do I need shampoo? And I guess it's because of habit. You know, I used to have hair, and so I'm like, ah, I'm just used to it. Like, use this one for this, and use this one for this. I mean, I don't know. You know, and so I guess just habit. Or, Or we get to things where we ask this, like, pain. Why do we react to pain and suffering the way we do? We want to avoid it. We want to stay away from it. And when it falls on us unjustly, we want it righted. And the answer is because it hurts. It hurts. It's not abstract, whether we're talking about physical pain or emotional pain uh, or spiritual lacking, spiritual warfare and the pain and doubt that comes with that. Like it hurts. There's something in us that says it's not right. It doesn't belong. We need to get rid of it. And yet we have the scriptures that actually put a plan how pain and suffering and sin entered into the world, how we're supposed to live in light of pain, suffering and sin inside of us and inside of the world with a God who's promised to redeem it and to resurrect all things and that one day he's going to come back and he's going to do just that. We have an explanation, an unfolding truth of how do we react to these things and whether we believe that or not, we all have the same kind of feelings about suffering and pain. Even though it should be the most natural thing in the universe. There should be nothing more natural. I mean, it happens. I mean, do you ever watch, like, uh, the Discovery Channel? Nature is brutal, man. <laughs> I mean, it's brutal. Like, we're always, like, we feel bad for the antelope that's getting dragged down by the lion and torn apart. But, like, it, I mean, that's it, how everything works. Like, we shouldn't be like, oh, my gosh, that's wrong. But there's something that's like, oh, man, the antelope, dang, you know. Why would we react unless there was something laid upon our hearts that is contrary to what we see that put a longing inside of us, something that we may have never fully experienced here or the things that we experience at best pointed to a need that was just beyond them? You know, even even last week, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, talking about the things that we think that if we just had more of them, we'd be okay. If we just had more money and possessions or meaningful work, if we built stuff, if we had more uh, experiences, you know, like the party and the the trips to Europe or, or whatever the experiences are, or if we just had a better sex life or whatever, the things that we think more of would make us happy, yet we might get them, and it's just always something we're Grasping just beyond that thing, and so C.S. Lewis is going to come around and say, "If there's nothing in this world that seems to satisfy that need, then the only reasonable, rational thing would be we're built for something beyond this world." And he he does the reasoning like, you know, I mean, you know, if you're hungry for, for, if you have hunger, there is food. If you have a libido, you know, there there is. Uh, intimacy, he goes on and he says, so if there's something that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only reasonable explanation is we're built for something beyond this world. And he describes it and it's resonating inside of our souls trying to find rest on all these other things. But it can't truly find rest because it's an echo of eternity, which we have Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11. God has placed the eternity on the hearts of all men. So nothing else quite fits. And so we come to a Psalm like Psalm 17 and we see David and he is praying because he is overwhelmed by pain and suffering and, and he he starts off and he's going to say this he's like God if you test me and you're you're going to find me to be innocent in this this is not right I didn't do anything that necessarily like deserves this I mean sometimes we do things and then like you know consequences happen and we're like what is this all about? And everyone else is like, "No, I see how that happened, you know." But just like what I mean, I mean just like what someone would experience in an invasion. The fear, I mean I can't I can't imagine, but the fear that you might God, how could you let this? I didn't do anything to bring this upon and yet it's here. What do we do when there's suffering? And so the promise and hope of Psalm 17 is that God is intimately involved in all pain and suffering. He has no blind eyes to turn, and nothing escapes his view. And, and so we're, we're going to look at this just under three headings. And so th- these are be the notes. We're going to like, you know, what is the problem? And the problem is pain and suffering. We're going to look at some descriptions of what we see here about what this is. And then we're going to look at what is causing the the problem. What causes pain and suffering? And it's going to talk about the brokenness inside of humanity and the selfishness and refusing to look at the pity and plight of others because all I can see is what I want. And if you want a good definition of sin, think about it like this, selfishness. What I want when I want it, and it trumps the needs of all others. It affects people. It affects babies. Like, if you don't, you're like, no, not babies. You haven't been around a baby. Like, babies are not, like, patient. They're like, Mom, I need to feed now. Nope, I didn't really want feed. I want you to entertain me. Nope, it's my diaper. Nope, I want you to dance for me. Dance for me right now. You know, I mean, like it's just, what do I need? When do I need it? Right Now, it exists among nations. And people groups. It indwells our dreams and hopes. A bend toward self. I need to be sovereign. What I want needs to be priority. What benefits me. And then finally, what can we do about it? And so let's just, let's get started. on This sermon that I started looking at at 8.15 this morning. Uh, Number one. What is the problem? And in this we see pain and suffering. Like like, look at verse 1, it says, Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. And so David prays that God would hear his just call. And so he's personifying, bringing this very, very personal. This is not abstract because all pain, you know, sometimes for us, like us crying out, like we're trying to empathize or we have sympathy. We're trying to say, man, what would it be like? Like, what would it be like to be pastoring in Ukraine right now? What would it be like to be putting my kids to bed while I'm reading to them and bombs are heard in the background? Like, we might empathize, but it's like, what would it be like? David is pulling it right to him. Hear my cause. Hear my cry. My cause, I believe, is to be just. And so that's the first thing in verse 1. He says, his cause. He says, attend to my cry. And so, you know, if we actually look at this just in the text as a whole, like you just look at it, you're going to see like very personified terms. Like you see terms like lips, face, eyes, heart, mouth, feet, ear, right hand and bellies. Like like you see these terms, like he's bringing it all inside. He's like, this is not just like some abstract reality that, oh, I don't really like it. He's like, I'm feeling this inside of my body. I'm feeling this upon me. It is heavy. He's saying, this is a problem. It is painful. And it is, it's personal. He says, this is what I'm swimming in. This has encompassed me. Like, it's not just like. He 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 thinks like this is wrong. It's like everything around him, he's being swallowed by the brokenness of this world and he cries to God for help. And then look it says this he didn't just say, Listen to my cause. Back in verse one it says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. And so he's saying like I think there is a wrong side. Like, I don't think this is a matter of disagreement on opinions. I mean, you like ice cream. I'm lactose intolerant. You know, it's not like that. He's saying, I think this is injustice. There is something that is wrong. This is not fair. Like, there's a lot of things that we get upset about that there's just... It's not like injustice. It's not like, you know, maybe a right or wrong thing. It's just like you have been infringed upon. You know, I mean, it's like... it. It's like when men wear sandals, you know, they way overestimate like the desire for people to see their toes, you know, in public. But I mean, like that's not a right or wrong thing. I mean, it's nearly a right or wrong thing, especially when you're wearing the jeans, but it's not a right or wrong thing. It's not a right or wrong thing. And, I mean, maybe it's because I'm bitter. I mean, I don't know if you remember Ethan, uh, when he preached, he talked about, like, toes. And he's like, you know, your big toe. And then they kind of cascade off. He's like, but sometimes you got the weird, you know, second long big toe or, you know, second toe. And, uh, and man, (laughs) I've got a big toe. And then my second toe is, like, way longer than that big toe. And actually, my third toe is longer than my big toe. Um And so maybe that's why I think sandals are wrong. I mean, I don't know. Um. But it's not a right or wrong thing. But what happens when it is? Like when you're like, this is a justice issue. This is a problem. David is pleading for God to take a look into this close and personal pain and suffering. And he's insisting that he's innocent. He hasn't done anything for this. To happen to him and I just want to ask this have you ever prayed like that the only way to get good at praying is to just say you're not good at it and just pray to, to drop all pretenses of like what it is, to go to the depth of your heart and just to say, God, this is what I feel like is inside of me. Because a lot of times, you know, like across the table prayer, or the way that works is like you're upset and you're like, God, what do I do with this? What do you think about this? And I find that God usually kind of starts with, let's start with what you think about it and then trying to work from the depths of the heart well I, th- I think it's wrong i mean i think it's i think it's it's trash i think it's wrong yeah, i mean you know there's other words in my heart that bubble out you know where it's like it's it's not right it's not fair it hurts like that's that's good prayer and then through the ministry of the word, contemplative Bible reading, as we take what we find in the depth of our heart, we just start to let the scripture press against it. All of a sudden we find the promises of God that give hope. And we find the promises that we wanted to apply to our bodies and our temporal presence now. And we find that God wasn't applying them directly to that. He was applying it for a new heaven and a new earth where there would be no end and no suffering. And so we go to the scriptures, and there's a leaning inside of it, and it starts to unpack that says, I see what's in your heart, and there are answers, and there are truths. And, man, what I loved I felt so bad for Maggie, because, I mean, literally, I found her. We were already singing, and I was like, Hey, you practice reading Ecclesiastes 2? Sounds like Psalm 17. You want to read that, you know? Um, and she's uh, <laughs> so gracious, and she did it. But like what do the scriptures, how do they read you and apply the truths of God that are always true no matter what, no matter what we think about them, no matter where we live or language that we speak or culture that we abide, how do they apply to the human condition what we say we know exists because we've all been on the side of something that we felt was unjust or unfair or we've all seen something we said it's not right. And the great thing about that is like a Romans 8, if you don't, if you try to get to the bottom of it, of prayer, like God, like this kind of prayer, it just seems wrong and God turns it on you. Well, how do you feel about it? And you're just trying to pull everything out and you don't know what to say. Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit of God, knowing your heart and the heart of God will intercede for you with groaning. Now that you don't have to try to produce that. You don't have to be like, I don't know what to pray. Ugh. You, know, you, don't have to, you don't have to try to produce it. You just say, I don't know what to do. And there's something the Holy Spirit of God will start to pull on you, and you start to think, man, I didn't think about that. I don't know what to do. And so what we see, if we're looking at what's the problem, we see personal pain and suffering. And so this steps into the heart of everyone who would be afraid, everyone who's been hurt, that there is a prayer that has been prayed, and this is one of them where it says, "God, where are you? Do you see this?" And so, the, the first is what's causing, you know, this prayer and its pain and suffering. The second, and I know we didn't get very far, we're going to jump around a little bit. Uh, so go to go to verse ten. The second is we're going to see some things of like, you know. What's causing it, and what's causing it is the wickedness that inhabits all people. Wickedness is causing it. And you know you've got a good sermon when you've written out wickedness. You know, wickedness. We don't use it enough. You know, there's words in the Bible we just don't use enough. Like, wickedness. And so, in many different places in this text, this points to us being the cause of suffering, um, even, like, all across the board. And so, first, look at verse 10. And so it's talking about, you know, what David would say, these people are being wicked. They're doing things. So what are they doing? Verse 10, it says, they, like they are people, people are us. So things that we do, so we, us, they close their hearts to pity. You see, what sin does inside all of us, and like we put it on a, on a on a liker scale, you know, where it's kind of like, well, I mean, I do that sometimes, but not like them who do it all the time. You know, we put it somewhere there, or, or we lie. I never do that, you know, I mean, at the scale of 1 to 10. I love the scale of 1 to 10. Um, no fives. You can't ever say five. You have to lean yourself one way or the other. But we, we put ourselves somewhere on this scale. But this is saying, like, they, and at times, David needs to include himself in this because Because he got confronted by the prophet Nathan, you know, about his sin. And so what happens is we start to close our hearts to pity. We start to, to, to think about just how things affect us and what we need and our rights and our things. And we start to close our hearts to the pity of others of how it hits them or hurts them or how they might think about it. And this is the danger. Whatever we close our hearts to, whatever we don't feed or we don't look into, that thing starts to atrophy. And you can atrophy something to where you are pitiless. You don't have pity anymore you don't care. And so the first is we see there's a danger of closing our hearts to pity. I mean, can we not see that? Like, I mean, when we're talking about border, dis- you know, war and invasion, and it's just like, well, I mean, we need it. It used to be ours. Close our hearts to pity. And then what happens in verse 10 it goes on, we start to preach a rhetoric of self-importance. Like we start to feed something. We close something off because of selfishness, and then we want to affirm how we feel, and so we start to feed it. And so look, in verse 10 it goes on, With their mouths they speak arrogantly. And so with their mouths, they start to actually feed something. And so language that we use a lot is we say, man, you need to stop listening to yourself because you wake up and you have these condemning voices in your head. Um, You have, you know, that also you have um, um, uh, temptation. Okay, temptation. They were banned too. You have temptation that pulls you, says, hey, that's wrong for some people, but it's not that bad for you because you suffered or because you worked hard. And so go ahead. Or then accusation that really beats us down. It can work the opposite where we start to excuse our sin and say, well, but that's really wrong. So if I have to do wrong to fix it, that's okay." And so we close our hearts to the pity of others. We preach a rhetoric of self-importance. We start to use our mouth to speak arrogantly. And that starts to grow something. And when we close our eyes to pity and preach self-importance to our hearts, we become inhumane. Look at verse 11. It says, they have now surrounded our steps. They've come around our house. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. They have a vision for our falling, for our suffering. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. And so you see what happens is like it starts with like I, I kind of shut something off in my heart that would be pity to others, or maybe just truth in general. I start to speak a defensive, a little defensive attorney stands up in your heart and says, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, technically it's wrong, but not for you. And that starts to grow. And then it appeals to our. Well, we got to be honest. Is in all of us. It appeals to things that we would say, man, that's that's not how humanity is supposed to treat one another. You know, I, um, I as just kind of reading about this and hearing reports of Christians and pastors that we're connected to through whether Acts twenty nine or uh, through Southern Baptists and just like what they're doing. You know, I read one report of an Acts 29 pastor. And, he um he was driving his family east and then to come back and my first thought was like man I never I never I didn't take the class of how to pastor during an invasion I don't know what to do but this is how wickedness happens yeah you know, verse thirteen and fourteen it gets it's really hard to translate so it sounds super weird um and so look at it. And so the ESV, like it seems to say, um, and I, I, think, yeah, I think it's right, but it's just really hard to translate. It seems to say, confront the bad people, save me from them, men of this world who only value the riches in this life. They may get those treasures, but they will have to leave it all uh, to their kids because they can't take it with them, which is biblically true. That's kind of what it seems to say. The NIV, it translates it like this. Now, the ESV tries to make as little um, translation as possible. It tries to give you the word, but sometimes just giving you the words, like word for word, it doesn't really compute. And so the NIV does a little bit more work with it. It's called a dynamic translation where it looks at the culture, looks at the words, and it tries to say it's using these words to say this. Now, the problem is sometimes other things can lean us in what it's saying, but it translates like this. And so verse 13 of 14 in NIV, it says, rise up, Lord, confront them. Not much difference then there. Bring them down with your sword. Rescue me from their wickedness. Not much difference. Verse 14. This is where it's hard. By your hand, save me from such people, Lord, from those of this world whose reward is in this life. May what you have stored up for the wicked fill their bellies. May their children gorge themselves on it. And may there be leftovers for their little ones. Which this is why they call it imprecatory, okay? It seems to say, confront the bad people, save me from them. For those, who own, those people who only value this life, may your wrath fill their bellies and may their kids choke on it. Like, that, that's not mean. That does not make a lot of coffee mugs, like, yeah, choke on it, yeah. But it's saying, like, there is something wrong. They only value the pleasures that this life can give, and they trample others, and there is suffering that's happening. May there be vindication for it. And so, I mean, I, I, I think that's actually true, too. You know, I mean, I, this is kind of like the 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 Man on Fire with Denzel Washington or the Taken with Liam Neeson kind of side of it, where you're like, man, it's just righteous, you know? Like in those movies, you get kind of like whatever they do, you're like, no, no, the guy they're killing would thank them later for it. They, he would thank them, you know, where like there's something so wrong. Yeah, one of my my commentaries. It really was wrestling with these and says, man, I don't think they're getting quite at it. And so, this is the commentary's uh, translation. And notice it, it uses the word mortals twice. And when it uses the word uh, mortals, it means human being, but it also means like human structures, like the machines of humanity. And so in verse 13 through 14, this is how the commentary translates. It says, rise up, O Lord, confront them, throw them down, rescue me from the wicked by your sword. From mortals, from people, from from people and their institutions and the the war, the machines of war, from these things, from these ideologies and these beliefs, from the things that capture our heart. You know, from mortal, mortal, mortal. <laughs> mortals Oh man, I have to say it again too. From mortals by the power of your hand, O oh Lord, from mortals whose lifespan and portion are in this life only, but your treasured ones So this is where it's really different. See, at first, the other translations did not personify the treasured. It said, but they're living for treasure, and it's confusing in the Hebrew. And I got a D in Hebrew, so I can't really help you out. I'm just going to tell you what they said. So it's confusing in Hebrew, but you can personify it. So it changes the subject. It says, not they're living for treasure, but you treasure people. And so it says, but your treasured ones, may their bellies be filled. May their children be satisfied, and may they have extra for their young. And so within that cry, I mean, I love that translation. Within that cry, you hear this. What they're doing is wrong. What they're standing with is wrong. Rise up, defend me, rescue me, pull me out. But Lord, if we are your treasure, would you fill our bellies? Would you fill us that we have leftovers, not just for our kids, but for our kids' kids? Would you be enough? Would you fill? And so, like, I, I know some, if if you're like me, you're like, well, which one's right? There's none of them are none of them are saying something that's wrong. Sometimes translation is tough. Like people's wickedness causes much suffering. And just like they're like, are you suffering? This would say, cry out to God who promises that he can step in and that he can save. Or it might be this, are you a part of causing suffering so we can move from what's happening on the other side of the ocean to what's personally into your relationships? Like, is there something that you're buying into or something that you're a part or a selfishness that you're demanding that you won't let go of? And you're being honest right now. You're saying, I'm causing some suffering. I'm causing pain. Or Or you know it says, God is against wickedness, and one day he will deal with all of it there's more to this life it's definitely saying that, or it's saying God is against wickedness. One day he will deal with it, and he has the most unbelievable otherworldly ability to step into brokenness, pain, and suffering and change it to fill Your belly that you have left over for others. God loves to fill his children to the full. And so this brings us to to the last thing. Like, what can I do about it? You know, with, with people as the cause of suffering, you know, when I'm. On the side of that and my selfishness is causing suffering, it's repent, apologize. When someone has caused me to suffer, it's to trust in God and to forgive, knowing that God is the God who vindicates. When I see suffering, it's to step in the way of that and to stand with suffering just like Jesus stepped into our world to stand with us, and so the first thing that we see, and I'm just gonna highlight a couple things, is like there has to be we have to be honest about suffering. A wrong narrative about suffering will cause more suffering, and so, you know, like in in verse one, it says, you know, give give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit sometimes we prefer a narrative about suffering because it excuses us and what would the scriptures demand of you they would demand be honest confess like be honest about it. and that means sometimes like if you're causing it to be honest and to repent it also means if you're suffering like be honest sometimes we're like man if i just don't state it it's not real and so i don't know if you ever play like hide and go seek with a little kid and they think man if they can't see you you can't see them and so you know you come in the room and you have to narrate it i mean i remember doing this with quinn you know like i'm looking for quinn where is she is she in the living room and she's like no like that doesn't i don't think you know how this works you know i come in and you know she's in their bedroom and she's in the middle of the floor just covering her eyes And, you know, I go along with him like, man, I can't see her. You know, I'm lying, Um, giving her a false sense of security. Uh, But sometimes when it comes to suffering, we just like we want to outrun it. That is what all of Ecclesiastes is about. There's a gnawing inside of my heart, something that I know is wrong, but I'm going to outrun it. I'm going to outrun it, you know, like chasing the party or chasing career, which we'll do that next week. Or I'm going to outrun it, you know, just chasing like pleasure or sexuality or whatever. I'm just going to outrun it. And it doesn't work. And so first, we have to be honest. Lips free of deceit. Be honest about suffering. You know, sometimes we suffer innocently, sometimes we're responsible for part or all of suffering. You know, we have to be careful about the dialogues that we develop inside of us because right now the dialogue that you're looking at someone else or the dialogue of whatever the rationale or reasoning for an invasion that you're looking across the ocean, like there's a damning dialogue inside of you. It's the same lies from Satan that said, no, 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 you be God. You decide what's right and wrong. Why should there be any limitation to what you can have? You see what happens when we don't stand against that? It won't be satisfied. It's not going to stop. It grows. And things shrink inside of our soul. And we have less and less pity for the suffering. And it grows more and more and more until you can justify pretty dark and horrible things. And so it's like, be honest. You know, I think sometimes there's a danger like I mentioned a little defense attorney inside your soul And maybe that I I hope that I hope other people relate to that. I hope it's not just me I mean, my dad was a lawyer So maybe it's just me but like that little voice that just pops up that says I object And starts to defend you instantly Like if you're looking at all the past surroundings of your life And you listen to that voice all the time it is mathematically not possible that that voice is always right. And everyone else just happens to always be wrong. Like, how can they not see what's going on, you know? I mean, that is mathematically, it is not possible. When I was uh, in, it, this is going to shock y'all, when I was in high school, I was in Corral. Uh, we sang songs, you know, together. And I got in because my sister was really, really good at it. And so you had to audition to get in. And so when Mr. Moore came, you know, to, you know, I was a freshman at East, uh, junior high, we were the fighting kittens. That's, that makes you feel good as a pubescent boy. Uh, we were the kittens. Uh, you came and you had to like sing stuff back. And I think he let me in because he's like, well, his sister's really good, uh, so maybe he just had an off day. Uh, but that wasn't true, and he was stuck with me. And uh, and so we would sing. And you know, Mr. Moore really liked me, like kind of like you you pity someone. You're like, oh, I mean, we got to help him out and so but in my junior year this thing started to happen so he had a thing he called the brown box and so when he would get mad because we're not singing something right, he would pull out this brown box, and it was just a brown box, and it had your folder number in it, and he would just pull out some folder number and say, sing this line. Now, if you're good, it's no big deal. You're not really afraid. You know, you're like, oh, I'll just sing it. <laughs> um, if you're bad and you know the reason it sounds wrong is because you weren't just moving your lips saying watermelon over and over, you were actually singing, it's terrifying to be around like 90 of your peers and to sing something out loud, and they all sm- smirk at you like they laugh and so sometimes they would just be like i want you to uh, sight read this and you'd have to do the numbers for it you know like one three five 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 and sometimes you just get so nervous you're just throwing i mean you're like throwing made up numbers 13 it's my soccer number um and so it got to where in my junior year he would go to the brown box he would pull my number out 76 every single time and so, I mean, it would just, he'd reach in there, look at it, and just look up, and everyone would just start laughing, you know, all 90 of my peers would just start laughing. And he'd be like, number 76. And one time I just said, Mr. Moore, it is not possible for that to be 76. He's like, what are you trying to say to me? I'm like, either every piece of paper in there is 76, or you are not holding 76, but you accidentally read 76. And he says, do you want to come take a look at it? I'm like, yes, it is not mathematically possible for it to say 76. And he says, well, you can't. Now, seeing, starting a stanza, blah, blah, blah. But it was like, it was always coming up. It was always pointing the direction of me. And I'm like, it's not mathematically possible. If every time, and I'm probably speaking a little bit more to us, if every time we enter into suffering and we say, it's got to be because of other people, I just don't know if that's mathematically possible. And so it'd be like, start with this, be honest about suffering. But here's the other Like remind yourself, remind yourself to God's view of suffering like he sees it. A misguided belief about God's sight of suffering will cause more suffering like he is fully aware. He sees everything that's happening and even more than that, he enters into it. So look at verse 2. Like, God is aware. It says in verse 2, From your presence, let my vindication come. For a vindication to come, he has to first be aware of the suffering and the wrong. And so God is aware and he sees. So you don't have to, like, explain it to him for the first time. He wants you to explain it because something has to flow out of our hearts so that we understand it. But God is aware. In Acts chapter 9, when... Um, Saul is persecuting the church and he gets blinded on the road to Damascus. Do you remember what God says to him? He says, why are you persecuting me? And he's blinded by this light. And he says, Lord, who are you? Am I persecuting? And he says, I'm Jesus. And you're persecuting my church. And so the correlation there is when we suffer, God feels it. Like it's not an abstract thing. Like he is very intimately aware. It goes on in verse 2. It says, let your eyes behold the right. See, God is aware of suffering. God is also aware of right and wrong. See, we can mislead ourselves and we can mislead others about what suffering is, but God cannot be misled. He is very aware. Very aware. Your eyes behold the right. And then in verses 3 through 5, we get this this invite God into evaluate and weigh and work inside of your soul, you know, invite him to hear Refusing to invite God in to hear his thoughts about suffering, it causes so much more suffering. You know, when, when something bad happens to us, um, like if you have something in your past that's just dark and something bad happens, there's some things that happen automatically. Like, like first off, there's a trauma that happens, like you feel a certain way about it. And like you, you, and so, like, what do you do now? First off, like, looking back at it, you can't change what happened. It's in the past. It happened. You have to be honest about what happened. You can't really change how you feel about it. You can't just tell yourself, "Hey, eh, I don't feel sad. You know, be happy. You can't do that. It doesn't work. It causes more damage. So you can't really change how you feel. You need to acknowledge how you feel. You need to get words for how you feel. You need to be able to talk about it. But then there's a third thing, and this is actually what we can do a lot of work in. It's when we investigate our interpretation about why it happened or what happened. And all of a sudden, because instantly when something happens with suffering, we have an interpretation about our worth or value or God's goodness or not. Suffering hits and we start to think things like, well, I mean, that's just what happens to someone like me. That's an interpretation of your value. Or something happens and we start to look at God and be like, you know, where is he? How could he allow this to happen? Valid questions, but it's saying something about his character and we need to take it to God and to God's people to investigate what is true about how God sees you and what is true about him. The interpretation is a powerful thing that happens subconsciously if we don't take a hold of it. And so we always need God's perspective in suffering. We can't heal without it. In verses 3 through 5, it's an invitation to God to search and find that David is, in fact, innocent. So listen to what he says. He says, you have tried my heart. Tried. God, I, I ask you to come in, man. If there's something I need to say I'm sorry for, I will. You have tried my heart and have visited me by night. And you have tested me. And you will find nothing. Now this does not mean that david's like i'm perfectly innocent i've never done anything wrong no sin in me it's saying in this thing i haven't done something that deserves this i i we were driving and i was trying to explain to my kids about this russian ukraine invasion and man they start asking great questions why did why 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 does putin why why is he doing it what does he want i don't know i mean you know, the ancestral borderlines. And, you know, I mean, I think he's afraid of, you know, NATO alliances, and they feel like that's aggressive. But, man, I, I just, I, I, don't, I don't know if he really cares about his people. You know, and he's like, why wouldn't he care about his people? I'm like, sometimes you can care so much about you and your pride that everything else is collateral damage. Why would he be in leadership? I'm like, I don't know, man. I think you know, they say he's killed everyone who's rivaled him. Why would they allow that? I'm like, I don't know. It's really, I don't know. but I tried, I'm trying to think about that conversation if you hear bombs in the background rattling the windows. Why? I don't know. Lord, save us. Lord, can you fill our bellies that there's leftover? Is there grace for me even right now? And so in verse 3, it says, tried my heart, visited me by night. Like this reminds us that God knows the motives of hearts and he sees and he knows. And then David persisted, he's innocent. Certainly doesn't mean that he's never sinned, but he's like, Man, look at me. Have I done anything? This is unjust. And so then we want to end with this. Cause this is this is the old testament. This is David crying out to the same sovereign God who from eternity past saw the sin of humanity and made an agreement within the triune nature of the Godhead to send Jesus to sacrifice that there might be a way back. And so what has God done about it? And so he, he can distinguish me with his love and so look 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 in verse 6 through 9 and then 15 there's a way that these things point to our hope there's a way that these things point to the hope of jesus to come that will rescue and that will one day resurrect all things and so like look look at verse 6 it says it says i yes i like i i call upon you for you will answer me, O God, incline your ear to hear me, hear my words. And so David was sure that he could call upon God and God would answer. But we can be so much more sure because God entered in. Like Jesus entered in. And like Romans 8, it comes to this conclusion. If Jesus entered in and he stayed on the cross, what now is going to happen that God's going to be like, Oh, man, you're too messy. And so he says, I'm sure, God, listen, hear my words. And then verse 7, look at these words, wondrously show steadfast love wondrously show like the word Paula. It means to make a distinction or to mark out. It means to look at a situation and say, I label it something because I chose to label it. And so it says, label this show with your steadfast love, has it your covenantal love always forever. Can't change because God made a promise. He did it through the person of Jesus. Jesus beat sin, Satan, and death. And he rose again because of that. Will you show up and and will you look at me and will you say wondrously and then it says "O oh, savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand keep me as the apple of your eye wondrously show because of your promise to me move me to the center of your gaze protect me like you would your pupil and then it says hide me in the shadow of your wing yeah, this, this is coming from Deuteronomy 32. Jesus alludes to this when he says, like a hen, you know, I want to gather God's people under my wing, gathers her chicks. And so the idea is there is affliction and there is weather and there is difficulty, but God, is there something that you can extend over me in this very moment? Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do violence to me, my deadly enemies who surround me. Like, let's read that again. And not like abstractly, like we're here, Lawrence, Kansas, the very middle of like America. Um, but how would you read this with bombs being heard in the background as the windows shake? From the wickedness who do violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. See, I I think sometimes we look at the scriptures and we're like, man, I don't know. I just don't know if it has anything for me. This has something for Ukrainians. Verse 15, jump down. As for me, I, I, yes, I, Shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And so these things say some things like first David said distinguish me and try to make me different by your steadfast love Change me and then it goes on and says show me that you love and value me even in my suffering Show up and then it goes on We have the wing talk and say like, can you protect me even when i'm surrounded even when affliction is falling down Even when there's violence around and then verse 15 we see this you can change me As for me, yes, I, even I, shall become your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And so, like, the word awake, like, you can take that literally. Like, if we take that literally, like, we have David. He is overcome with suffering. He is overcome with questions. And he is trying to put himself by remembering the promises of God and praying himself to sleep. And he ends with this, yes, I can wake up in the morning and your steadfast love will be there. Sometimes there's nights like that, and you need literal. I can wake up in the morning, that kind of wording, and your righteousness will be there. You can change my situation. You can change me. Or sometimes you might just need the poetic, like the awake. Like, I woke up to this reality or, or, or you know, a season of time. Like, this could be poetic. I mean, absolutely, you know, David was a poet. He had a harp. And it could be like, this is the case where he says, this is a time of desperation, a time of suffering. But I am confident that there will be a dawn to this night. There will be something that changes with the coming of light. So, rereading Lord of the Rings. You know, at the battle of of Deep Helm when Aragon is trying to get everyone ready and um, Gandalf had told him, hey, when the darkness comes, but the morning is coming, look to the east and I will be coming with the light. Like he says, look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day at dawn, look to the east And if you saw the movie, like, I mean, he comes out on Shadowfax, you know, and it's a white horse, and, like, light's coming behind him. You're like, oh, my gosh, Gandalf is Jesus. Like, I mean, that's like (laughs) Revelation. The promise of light to push out darkness. When we look at the world as it really is. I don't know how you make sense of it if you don't believe in eternity. Things like this have to be so frustrating for like, for, for like your elite skeptics, like highly intellectual skeptics that don't believe in an afterlife, don't believe in a judging God, because the belief is if we get the right information to people, like if they have access to information, like things like war and poverty will be a thing of the past. Like we won't do those horrible things because we'll sit down and be like, hey, it just doesn't really make sense. I mean, A equals B and B equals C, so A equals C. And like we have a lot of information, like the belief that if people had access to good like information that it would fix these problems, the internet definitely proved that doesn't work. Okay. Like I, you don't have to, wonder anymore like you're like hey what is that song talk to your phone it'll tell you you don't have to wonder but it's proved it doesn't work like it's got to be so frustrating but what do we believe we believe that jesus Entered into humanity about 2000 years ago to become a substitutionary atonement, meaning he took our sins upon himself and he just didn't die on a cross. He took the wrath of God so that we could be righted and we could become sons and daughters with all the rights that he had, because he was the only perfect son that never ran away. And so all the rights he hands to us and he takes his our sin upon himself. And it's not because of what we did. It's because of grace. And so if we look to Jesus and we say, I think you did that. I think you are the son of God. The scriptures say you have it, and we look forward to a God who says He will write all things. Bernard Busiani, um, a guy I came across, he's a Rwandan genocide survivor. Uh, he was in the the country doing some uh, biblical training, and I mean, his family was massacred. His story's crazy. And uh, he was doing some biblical training with, um, I mean, what I would say, kind of a, a strand of theology. I don't think it's very strong. Um, and he, uh, like, I, he came and spoke to our youth, you know. And I, we kept him for a night, just kind of talking to him. He's like, "Yeah, man, they're kind of crazy." And he's like, "But what I see in America is, man, you guys don't really like to talk about like judgment of God." And he's like, "You guys like to talk about God's love, and it's great, but you don't like to talk about the judgment of God." And he's like, without the belief in the judgment of God, I would pick up a machete to avenge everything that happened. But if I believe that God will judge everything, whether on the cross and find forgiveness and wholeness, just like my sin was there, or he will judge it in the end, I don't have to vindicate all my wrongs. I need to look to Jesus. So how did that happen? Just listen to the words of 1 Peter 2, verse 22 through 25. He, Jesus, committed no sin. Neither would deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, that means hated. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, God, who judges justly. He, Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross. And that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. Verse 25. For you were all straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Like so many truths in that, like Jesus, he didn't do anything wrong. He lived a life we couldn't live, but our sin was laid upon him and we hated him for it, but he didn't hate back. And then it goes on. It says like we, you know, that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's a changing thing that happens in us. His wounds have healed us. It can actually change everything. And it says we are like sheep straying we need to return to the shepherd the overseer of our soul and that's not just coming back to salvation that's saying jesus is our shepherd in all the meandering sufferings that this life will bring and that he can fill the bellies of all those who suffer and he is present and he feels them and he's promised there is purpose and there is meaning and we we make little of the circumstances when we add, like, arbitrary meaning to suffering of, well, guess is what God's going to do. I don't know what God's going to do. But I know God gets really mad when his children are hurt. Let's pray. Uh, Father, Lord, we, um, man, I feel like so many times I've despised imprecatory psalms, and, Lord, we need them. And Lord, I mean, just even to a friend uh, yesterday just confessing, man, I don't know if I've ever prayed for nations. I mean, I've, I've prayed for our nation because I'm like, man, we're crazy. But I don't know if I've ever just prayed for nations, and yet the world seems so small. And so, Lord Jesus, Lord, we ask for help, and Lord, we ask for ceasefire. We ask that weapons would be laid down. Lord Jesus, I ask that soldiers would lay weapons down and defy their command. Lord, I ask that pity and humanity would rise to the top and there would be a sense of why. Lord, I ask that you would change leadership and you would change hearts. Lord, you would give wisdom. But Lord, you would also overthrow leadership. Lord Jesus, I ask your kingdom come. I ask your will be done as earth as it is in heaven. And what do we find in the courts of heaven? But we find the celebration of goodness. We find the light of God. And we find a humanity that we desire more than anything. So Lord, join us. Move. Change. Don't allow any suffering to go unused, but resurrect them all. Lord, move our hearts toward pity. Move our hearts toward thankfulness. Move our hearts toward action. And Lord, it's uh, the cross that moves our hearts. And so every week when we come to communion, we're reminded that it was not sentiment. You didn't come and just give us an example of how to live. You came and you died a substitution death in our place. And that's what brought us into the kingdom of God. That's what makes us your children. And so, Lord, we see that every week in the bread and the wine. And so, believer, the way we take communion here is uh, we can come forward or you can go backwards. If you come forward, what you'll find is the bread will be torn away and it'll be dipped into wine for you and handed. And there'll be a proclamation over your life that this is the, the body and the blood of Jesus that was spent for you. Um, If you go to the back, we have individual servings that are uh, gluten-free and grape juice. And it's the same reminder, a physical action, that you actually take it in to remind that we don't just need an ethereal salvation. We need a physical, bodily, spiritual salvation. But there's another movement, and the movement's just, uh, Maggie mentioned it, just prayer. We have people who will be back behind the black curtains, and they have lanyards, and if there's something haunting on you... Uh, that has to do with suffering, suffering that you're causing or suffering that's happening to you or trying to understand suffering that you see, tell them as little or as much and just let them pray. I want that to be a normal thing. We just ask for prayer. Jesus, we need you and we want you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.